The unexpected humbling is that thing that comes into your life perhaps when you least expect it. It's when life seems to be going along smoothly and then all of a sudden here's this thing, this problem, this issue, this crisis. It often comes in an area of life in which you think, well, at least that area I don't have to worry about. <laughs> like everything is going smooth sailing. It often, though not always, will come in an area of life where perhaps previously we had really trusted the Lord and seen Him do amazing things. But yet over time we slowly became less uh, urgently praying in that area. And that's where we're ripe for an unexpected humbling. For example, you and I can experience an unexpected humbling in the area of finances. Perhaps early on in our careers, we really struggled financially and we had to pray earnestly for God to provide. And it seemed like every pay period was a, was a miraculous intervention of God to give us money that we needed. But slowly over time, we, we kept working hard and we got better at managing how we spent things and we saved money and we got a better job and we had a better salary. And then perhaps over time, that urgent prayer became less and less urgent and suddenly God faded from view in our finances. And then suddenly a financial crisis hits and it's an unexpected humbling. Or you can have an unexpected humbling in the area of academics. Perhaps early on in your academic career when you were a young student, maybe in first and second, third grade, perhaps you struggled with learning and it was difficult for you, but your parents taught you that you should pray and ask God for help and you really prayed and earnestly and every night you were praying and God did show up and he taught you things and, and he helped you get through school and school became something that was not so much of a, a burden but something you actually enjoyed and over time you got better at being a student and perhaps you even flew through high school and suddenly studying was easy for you and all of this stuff that you had once struggled with, this was now uh, something you loved and were good at. But perhaps you hadn't noticed that you hadn't been praying so much about studies anymore. And then you go off to college in your first year of college, suddenly you find yourself in way over your head academically. That's what I mean when I talk about an unexpected humbling. Perhaps you've experienced something like that in the area of marriage. Maybe your marriage has been going along and you haven't given much thought to it and you think, well, this is great. My married life is fine. I got other problems over here, but marriage is great. And then suddenly there's something that happens to you or to your spouse or to your relationship. And it's this sudden unexpected wake up call, this crisis that comes. It can come in the area of parenting. Maybe you have a poor time and energy into being a parent and you've done a good job with it so much so that your friends and other people around you are starting to come to you and ask you for advice and say, man, your kids turned out so great. How'd you do it? And you begin to give advice about parenting, like, parenting and then all of a sudden, one of your kids makes a really, really bad choice. These unexpected crises and unexpected humblings can come in the area of sports. Maybe you have succeeded for a long time athletically, but then you get into a new league, perhaps, uh, and you've been playing soccer for a long time, for example, and this has always come easy to you. But then suddenly you find yourself in a situation where you get cut from the team or you get benched by a coach. These are all examples of the kinds of unexpected humblings that come into our lives. Well, this morning we want to look at that subject and look at that issue and we want to see what God has to say to us about these all too common experiences. I've had them, I've had many of them. <laughs> You've had them. 
Let's see what God has to say about them. Take your Bible, if you will, and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15, it's page 225. In the Bibles the church provides, there's one in the rack in front of you or underneath your seat, if you need to look at that. 2 Samuel 15, we're looking in the life of David, and David is experiencing in this story an unexpected humbling. Now, we're going to look at one story, but it's a long story. It spans four chapters. We're going to try to cover them all today. We're not going to read them all. We don't have time for that, but I encourage you to go home and read this story, 2 Samuel 15 through 18, all one story. I'm going to retell the story as we go through it, and we're going to highlight some of the important things along the way, but I encourage you, take time to read through the story. It's really, it's a fascinating, interesting story. But it's about David going through an unexpected humbling. Now, in many ways, he's a prime candidate for this. Early on in David's career, when he was first being anointed as king, when he was selected or volunteered to fight Goliath, when he was fighting against the Philistines, when he's on the run from Saul, we knew David was in way over his head. He knew he was in way over his head. And David prayed earnestly and consciously, and God kept showing up, and it seemed like it was miracle after miracle early on in David's career. Years go by and he ascends to the throne as the king of Israel and even then still there's trouble, there's civil war with the house of Saul. There's capturing Jerusalem and establishing it as the capital, trying to get the Ark of the Covenant there and David has a difficult time with that, wanting to build a temple for the Lord and again we still see David interacting with God. But by the time we get to 2 Samuel 15, David's been king for a long, long time. God's given him rest from all his enemies. He's defeated everybody that he's come in contact with. His kingdom is large. It's the biggest it's ever been in Israel's history. And you may not have noticed, but in the past few chapters in 2 Samuel, God's been mentioned less and less frequently. Now, even though it's only a few chapters, they cover a large span of years in David's life. And it seems that David has grown more and more comfortable in his role as king. Now, he's had family problems. But when it comes to his role as king, he's not had a lot of challenges recently. He's going to face one here in this situation. Last week, we looked at how his son Absalom and David were estranged from one another, but God brought reconciliation well, 2 Samuel 15 picks up the story some considerable time after that reconciliation occurred. David and Absalom have uh, made up, but at some point, as time goes by, Absalom begins to think that he would be a better king than David. And he begins to plot how he can take the throne from his father, David. Now, this may just simply have been a result of human ambition. Absalom may have had a bunch of friends telling him, hey, look, you'd be a better king. You should do this. It may have just been something rooted in his heart. It may also have been the fact that in 2 Samuel 13, in the incident with Amnon and Tamar that we looked at, David showed no leadership whatsoever. It may have been in 2 Samuel 14, when Absalom was estranged from David. Again, David showed no leadership whatsoever. And it can be that Absalom has noticed that his father David has grown comfortable as king and that he's no longer providing the leadership that Absalom thinks Israel needs. 
And so Absalom decides he wants to steal the kingdom from his father. Now the way he does it is he sets up camp in Jerusalem just outside the king's court. And anybody from Israel who comes who wants to interact with King David, Absalom intercepts them. And he flatters them as he talks to them and says things that runs down his father and lifts himself up and he sets himself up as judge and says, oh, if there was only somebody like me appointed in the nation, I could, I could take care of all of your problems for you. And it says that he won the hearts of the people of Israel over four years of doing this. When Absalom becomes confident that the nation for the most part sides with him, he heads to the city of Ebron and there he declares himself to be king, even though David is still ruling in Jerusalem. Now to give you a sense of the seriousness of the problem in which David finds himself, this is no little coup, this is no little revolt. Look in chapter 15, verse 12 to get a sense for just how serious this is. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Now, the man Ahithophel that's mentioned here is a very important character in the next four chapters. This is the only part of the Bible that he shows up in. But from chapter 15 to chapter 18, he's a very important character. Now, who Ahithophel is, is that he's the wisest man in Israel. He's basically the smartest guy in the kingdom of Israel. And he's David's counselor. So intelligent, so wise is Ahithophel that in chapter 16... It's described, his advice is described this way. Now, in those days, the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. Now, listen to that statement. Basically, that means is that if you asked Ahithophel a question, it was like asking God a question. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. This guy gave such great advice. He was so wise and so smart that if you went and asked Ahithophel something, it was like getting counsel from God himself. Now, God wrote that statement. That's a powerful affirmation of Ahithophel's wisdom. Now, when you read the statement that he switched sides, that he was on David's side and he's now switching to Absalom's side, that's not just a warning that, uh-oh, Absalom now has got the smartest guy on his side. It's also an indictment that says the wisdom in Israel is now with Absalom. Meaning that if you're smart, if you're wise, if you make good decisions, the person you want to pick is Absalom, not David. That shows you just how much trouble David is in. I mean, early on in David's career... Smart money didn't bet on him. Against Goliath, those aren't, that's not, you don't want to bet on David there. Running from Saul, most likely David's going to lose. But yet time and again, David kept winning. Until some point, everybody stood up and took notice and said, oh, this David guy, he's the one you want to side with. And for years and years and years, any conflict David went in, David was where you wanted to place your money. David was the person that you wanted to root for. David was the one that was going to win. Until we get here. 
And for the first time in a long time, David doesn't look like he's going to win. And that the really wise people, the really smart people, they no longer think David's the one to go with. This can happen to us too. This is how you know when it's an unexpected humbling that happens, when conventional wisdom tells you you're in trouble. Perhaps all those people who were telling you that you did a great job as parent, listening for your advice saying, hey, help me with this situation. After they see that really, really bad choice that your child make pretty soon, they think, well, I'm not sure I want any advice from you anymore. That's how you know that an unexpected humbling has occurred. Perhaps in the area of finances, maybe people used to look at you and say, man, I wish I had, I wish I had followed the plan he's following. I wish I had invested in the stuff she'd invested in. And then the financial crisis hits and conventional wisdom says, oh, thank God I didn't follow that path. I'm so thankful I didn't invest in the things you invested in. It can happen at your job. Perhaps you've always been the person at the company when there are new hires or, or new people who come in, they always want to spend time with you because they want to network you. They want to ride your coattails. You're going towards the top and they want to be there with you. And then you are assigned a lateral transfer at your company and suddenly conventional wisdom says, look, that's not the guy to jump on the bandwagon with. Suddenly nobody wants to spend time with you. Nobody's trying to network with you. That's how you know that an unexpected humbling has occurred. Conventional wisdom says you're not the guy anymore. That's what's happened to David. It's been a long, long time since that's happened. But here it is. Ahithophel is saying, look, if you're smart, Absalom's where you want to be, not David. Now David knows that, look in verse 13, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. David knows he's in deep, deep trouble. This is no minor coup. This is no minor revolt. He knows he's in trouble. Now think about just how unexpected this must have been. Just minutes earlier, minutes earlier, he was just king of Israel. Everything was going along smoothly. He'd been doing the job he'd been doing for 20 years or 30 years. He was simply going through and being king, enjoying all of the pleasures of being the king. And then in one moment, it's gone. He's now on the run. He's having to leave the city of Jerusalem. Suddenly he's embarrassed, he's humiliated. He's got a small band of followers who is going with him. He hasn't been in this state since way back when he was running from Saul, years and years and years ago. So too, you and I know that these kinds of unexpected humblings can come in a moment's notice. You get a notification from the bank that they're calling the loan and you think, but I've, I've paid faithfully. They don't have a right to do this and suddenly you're in disarray. You show up one day at the practice and the coach says you're not starting this week. And it feels like it's out of the blue and you think, well, where did that come from? You show up to work tomorrow and your boss sits down with you and says, hey, there's going to be some cutbacks and you're one of them. And you think, but, 
I had no idea that this was coming. Maybe you receive a phone call from a child and they're asking you to come bail them out of prison, bail them out of jail. It can come in a moment's notice. It can also come more slowly over time. Perhaps in school you've been falling farther and farther behind in your studies and you feel like you're sinking deeper and deeper. It may be that there's a new medical supervisor that's been hired at the hospital and you can feel that your influence in the medical community at your job is, is waning. Maybe your wife gets a new job and you can tell that she's more and more interested in her work and less and less emotionally available for you. In David's case, it was sudden, but these unexpected humblings come into our lives and then suddenly our life is thrown into disarray. What's our response? What's the proper response when something like this happens, regardless of the area of life? Well, let's look to see how David responded to this crisis in his life. Chapter 15, verse 25. As David is fleeing from the city of Jerusalem, Zadok, who is the priest, comes to him and says, hey, look, do you want to take the ark of God with you? David responds, verse 25, and in his response, we see the proper response to a crisis like this. The king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. And encapsulated in that phrase and in those sentences is the proper response when a crisis like this happens. David remembers the Lord. See, one of the blessings of these kinds of humbling experiences is that when we're going through life and we're on cruise control, as Lenski said, when things are going smooth, we can begin to forget God. David here suddenly is reminded, wait a minute, my life is in God's hands. You see, what happened to David is what Deuteronomy 8 says can happen to any one of us as we're traveling through life. Listen to what God says. When you have eaten and are satisfied... Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. David has forgotten the Lord. We can sympathize with him. It seems reasonable. I mean, he's had so much success. But what Deuteronomy 8 says will happen, does happen to David. That early on, he's got to rely on the Lord constantly, daily. But somehow over time, he gets good at being king. 
He's been doing it for so long, he can do it with his eyes shut and he starts to go through the motions. And what this unexpected humbling does is it causes him to remember, wait a minute. I'm not king because I've been a good ruler or a good leader, I've made good decisions. I'm king because my life is in God's hands. David had forgotten that. We forget that too. We have success in business and we think, well, yeah, it's because I work hard. I get up early. I do the right things. I go to the conferences. I do the stuff. I'm a good boss. I'm a good worker. Yes, of course, that's why. We think to ourselves, yeah, my kids are turning out well. It's because I don't spend all my time doing extracurricular activities. I spend time with my kids. I'm, I'm, I'm doing devotions with them. I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing with them. We think, well, my marriage is strong. Of course it's strong. It's because other people, they're out doing stuff they're not supposed to be doing. I work hard at marriage. You know, my wife and I, my, my husband and I, we try. And listen, all those things are good. But along the way, it's easy to forget. My marriage is in God's hands. My kids are in God's hands. My business is in God's hands. He's the one who's given the ability. He's the one who's allowed blessing to come into my life. But it's so easy to think I did this. So the proper response when one of these unexpected crises happens is to remember our lives are in the Lord's hands. What David is saying is, look, I don't know if I'm going to come back. I don't know how this is going to turn out. If he'd asked me a week ago, I would have told you, I'll take care of it. I got the army. I got it all set. I got it all under control. But today, I've realized my life's in God's hands. Whatever he decides. If he wants to bring me back, he'll bring me back. If he doesn't, he doesn't. It's a very different attitude. It's a very different attitude to say, you know what, my job, I don't know what, I don't know what I'll do for work in the future. I don't know how my marriage is going to turn out. I don't know how these kids are going to turn out. I don't know what to do about my finances. They're in God's hands. That's the proper response when one of these unexpected humbling events happens. What's the evidence of that response? Well, there are two from the life of David. How do we know that he's not just saying these words, that he actually is remembering the Lord? There are two of them. The first one comes in chapter 15, verse 31. We'll we'll read verse 30 for the context. David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed. O Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Now that may not seem that remarkable, but it becomes more remarkable if you start thumbing back through the pages of 2 Samuel and realize that we haven't heard about David praying for a while. Now there is a family crisis that David gets himself into a couple of chapters earlier that he does pray during. But if you go back to the time when he actually prayed about something related to him as king, where his job was in jeopardy, you have to go all the way back to 2 Samuel 7, which represents years and years of his life. 
The first evidence that we know that David has remembered the Lord is that he remembers prayer. That he remembers, wait a minute, I used to pray differently than I'm praying now. Now, David, he knows how to pray. We got to, he wrote the prayer book that's in the Bible. And if David can forget how to pray, how easy is it for us that as things begin to go along, yes, we used to pray earnestly about struggles we were having athletically or academically or relationally or any of these things, and then God gives us blessing, and then all of a sudden you notice, I don't pray as much anymore about that stuff. I don't pray as much anymore about my kids as I used to because they seem to all be doing fine. I don't pray as much about finances as I used to because I seem to be coasting through. And one of the evidences that we know that we've remembered God after this crisis is we start to pray again. Now look, it's not that David does nothing. It's not that he says, well, Absalom's gonna try to kill me. I'm just gonna get on my knees right here and just start praying and see what happens. As soon as he prays about Ahithophel's counsel being turned into foolishness, in the next set of verses, David recognizes an opportunity that God may be answering that prayer. He has a friend named Hushai the archite who also is an advisor. And Hushai says, look, I'm with you. Ahithophel's going over there, but I'm with you. And David says, well, wait a second. Why don't you go to Jerusalem and pretend that you're with Absalom? Perhaps you could be help to me there. What David is doing is he's drawing on his wisdom that he's gotten as king. But what he sees is in Hushai the archite perhaps an answer to prayer that he just prayed. It turns out that this will be the answer to the prayer. So I'm not saying you don't do anything. But notice the first thing that David does when the crisis hits is not fall back on his experience as king. He will draw on that experience, but that's not the first thing he does. It's not that when David uh, falls into this crisis, the first thing that he does is find others to help him or to give advice. He will ultimately take advice from others, but that's not the first thing he does. The first thing David does is he rediscovers prayer. And that's the evidence that we know that we've remembered the Lord. Because up till this point, David had been taking matters into his own hands. And now he thinks, well, this is beyond my hands. There are things I can do but I can't make this turn out one way or the other. I, my life is in the Lord's hands. And when you feel that way, you will pray. You may do things, but you're going to do them because they seem to be answers to what you just prayed, as opposed to, well, here's what a good king in this situation would do. The second evidence that we know that David's heart has returned to remember the Lord comes in chapter 16 beginning in verse 9. Now, as David is leaving the city of Jerusalem, a man named Shammai, who is from the tribe of Benjamin, which is where David's predecessor Saul was from. So that tribe is going to be aligned with Saul much more closely than they are with David. As David is leaving, Shammai takes this as an opportunity to walk near him and to call out curses on him basically trying to tell him, you got what you deserved. You should have never taken the kingdom from Saul in the first place. And he begins to throw dirt on them and call curses on them. Now listen to me. If there's one of you and there's a king who, yes, it's a small group, but they've got swords and they're armed. If you're gonna choose to curse, that's not a good idea. Well, this is where Shammai finds himself, verse nine. Abishai, who's one of David's uh, soldiers, son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? 
let me go over and cut off his head. <laughs> like, look, that guy right up there on the ridge who's yelling at us, I'll just take this sword, go cut off his head, and we'll be done. Makes good sense. But look at how David responds. But the king said, what do you and I have in common, you sons of Zariah? Meaning your approach to this crisis and my approach to this crisis come from different hearts. If he's cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son who is of my own flesh is trying to take my life. How much more than this Benjamite? <laughs> he's like, look, if Absalom thinks I'm a terrible dad and a terrible king, how much more is this guy going to think I'm a terrible king? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. The second piece of evidence that we know that David's heart has returned to the Lord, that he's remembered God, is that he embraces his humiliation. He embraces his humiliation. <clears throat> Excuse me. When a crisis like this happens, it could have been easy for David to blame Absalom. Why would he do this to me? To blame the nation of Israel. I've been so good to them. How could their hearts leave me? To blame his advisors. Like, didn't you guys notice that he was down front and front winning people's hearts to himself? Where were you guys? What am I paying you for? But David doesn't point a finger at anybody else except himself. Maybe he hasn't been the father he should have been. If his own son is treating him this way, why shouldn't the people of Israel treat him this way? David has embraced this hum humbling, this humiliation. He says it's probably from the Lord. What David is saying is, you know what? After all these years of being king, I probably needed to be humbled. It's been a long time since anybody has cursed David and he thinks, you know what, this is actually good for me. I have made mistakes. I've not been perfect. When a crisis like this hits our lives, we like to blame others. Our kids make a bad choice and we want to blame society. We want to blame Hollywood. We want to blame their friends. We want to blame everybody else. We have a financial situation, a difficult situation. We want to blame the banks. We want to blame uh, uh, Wall Street. We want to blame interest rates. We want to blame whatever we can. Our financial advisor who told us to do these things. We have a crisis at work. We want to blame our boss. We want to blame the corporation. We want to blame the new direction that things are going in. We have a crisis on our sports team. It's the coach's fault. If he recognized, if he, if he was a better coach, I wouldn't be in this situation. But that's not what David does. David is willing to say, well, maybe things aren't going well athletically because I've made sports into an idol. And maybe this humiliation is from God trying to refocus me on him. Maybe the problem's not my boss. Maybe I've just not been very supportive at work. Maybe I've not been trying very hard. Maybe I'm unwilling to see things the way he or she wants to see them. Maybe I've not been as generous with my finances as, as I could have been. Maybe I've not been the unselfish parent that I thought I was. 
Maybe we did fine in all of those areas, but we somehow have forgotten God in our parenting or in our finances or in our work or in our health or in whatever it may be. The way you and I can know that our hearts have returned to the Lord is when we embrace humiliation as being from God. David's made mistakes. David's not been a perfect king. And so what he says is, is this is the Lord humbling me and maybe God will see me in this humbled state and rescue me. What David is essentially saying is, look, I would rather be beat down because then I've got the hope that God will lift me up rather than to try to fight my way out of this. Abishai, you go cut off his head? Well, we're not gonna get any mercy or help from God. That's how you know that David's heart is no longer with himself, but has returned to God. Well, what's the outcome of all of this? Well, chapter 17, the story is resolved in verse 14. Now, there's still the details of how it gets resolved in the rest of 17 and chapter 18. Again, I encourage you to read the rest of the story on your own. But once what happens in verse 14 happens, you know that the story's over. Basically, Ahithophel and Hushai are called in before Absalom and he asks for both of their advice. What would you do in order to capture David? Ahithophel gives some great advice. He says, you go right now, go right now and kill him. Do not give him a chance to get his feet underneath of him. Hushai, who is there uh, as a spy for David, says, no, 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 that's bad advice. Let's get the whole kingdom together. We'll get everybody together and then we'll move on him in mass. What Hushai is hoping to do is buy David some time. Verse 14 of chapter 17. Absalom and all the men of Israel, as they listened, said, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithophel. And here's the reason why. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. <laughs> Even in this case, Ahithophel's given the right advice. See, David can't stop Ahithophel from giving advice. He can't stop Ahithophel from giving the right advice. He can't suddenly make him unintelligent or unwise. But David knows God can do things that he could never do. And in this case, God frustrates Ahithophel's advice. If Absalom had listened to Ahithophel's advice, David would have been lost. There would have been nothing he could have done. But God was back in the mix. That's the result. We all go through humbling crises. We all forget God. We all get to a point in which we're on cruise control, in which we're sailing smoothly through life. The difference is, is when it happens, how do we respond? Do we respond by blaming everybody else, by blaming circumstances, by blaming the situation? Or do we in humility say, you know what? This is probably from the Lord to bring me down a few notches. Do we get down on our knees or do we say, I can handle this. I'm gonna try this. I haven't tried that yet. I haven't done this yet. David has taken the right approach. He's realized, I've forgotten God. I've simply gone through the motions of being the king. And I've gotten what I deserved, which was a humbling from the Lord. But when David falls to his knees and begins to pray again, when David in humility embraces what God has allowed to have happen, now God's on his side. Both James and 1 Peter say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. At the beginning of this story, David was going on cruise control in the arrogance of thinking he had it under control. 
At this point in the story, he has been humbled and has accepted that humiliation. And now God's going to fight for him. And God will rescue David. And it doesn't matter what Absalom does or Hithophel does or anybody else does. Once God begins to fight for you instead of against you, then you're rescued. So the question for you and I this morning is, have you been through an unexpected humbling recently? If so, and you've responded this way, then you can testify that God is exactly who he was for David. If you've not yet responded this way, let this be an encouragement from the Lord. Don't do what, uh, don't do what Abishai wants to do, which is simply pull out your sword and go chopping people's heads off. Are you in the middle of a crisis now? Perhaps God brought you here this morning to tell you, look, I brought this into your life to help bring you back to me, to help you remember. My encouragement is follow the example of David. In whatever area of life you may have been cruising along, this thing that's happened, this news that you got, this health problem that you've had, Whatever it may be, recognize it as a gift from the Lord to help us overcome exactly what Deuteronomy 8 says is going to happen to all of us. It's so easy to forget God when things are going well. And if you're here and you think, well, I don't want to go through a crisis. Examine the areas of your life in which perhaps you have begun to take things easy and ask the Lord if there's an area or a way, if there's a crisis that's coming that perhaps you could avoid. Ask him. Maybe he will show you that. Let's pray together. Father, we celebrate the way in which you are a kind father to us. An absentee father allows us to simply go on and do whatever we feel like doing until we've run our life aground. But you're good to us. When we become reliant upon ourselves, you know that destruction is waiting. And so you're kind to bring us these unexpected humblings to help us back on our path. Lord, I pray for any who are going through something like that right now. Perhaps last night they got the news of a crisis that they were not expecting. God, would you remind them that you brought them here this morning to encourage them about the right way to go through it. God, for those of us here who can testify of times in which we have forgotten you because we've gotten comfortable in life, yet you've shown up and through a humbling returned us to you, Lord, we say thank you. I thank you for what you've done in my life in that area, Lord. I wish I didn't have to go through those humblings, but I do thank you for them. God, I know that there are many in this room who that is the prayer of their heart right now. Accept our praise and our thanksgiving. And Lord, for those of us who may have an area of our life in which we have uh, hit the cruise control button, I pray that this would be a wake-up call to remind us that we must not forget you. God, you've been so good to us. You've been good to this church. You've been good to this country. You've been good to us individually. You have blessed us financially. Oh, Lord God, you've blessed us with so many resources. Lord, we notice that our, our nation is so quick to forget you. God, and we see that in our own hearts. Have mercy on us, Lord. Speak to us through your word that we might learn this way as opposed to a more difficult way. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.